First, God, we thank you for the opportunity to share some of what you've given us, some of that with which you've blessed us in financial resources to participate with you in the coming of your kingdom around the world and particularly in northern India. Bless and provide for those men and women who will be trained and equipped and who will train others to go into villages and cities and towns to announce your coming kingdom and your good news of your grace and your love and your power for them. Uh, Through your spirit, bring about transformation and the healing of individuals and families and villages and a nation and a world that your name might be lifted up. We pray these things in Christ the Lord. Amen. This past week, a good friend of mine uh, passed away. Uh, a, good friend of, a good friend of a good friend of mine passed away. And my friend, who does not speak of practicing any faith himself, expressed on social media his confidence that his good friend was now in heaven. And lots of people do this, lots of people speak this way, whether they follow Jesus or not, whether they consider themselves to be Christians or not, whether they practice a particular faith or not, almost regardless of their whole belief or unbelief. But on what basis, I ask myself when I read his post, on what basis do people suppose that there is anything beyond this life and this earth and these bodies? What is the basis for people's thinking and such belief? In a post-enlightenment world built on a foundation of science alone, where do people come up with such ideas? From the movies, from Hallmark, from random authors or celebrities or the Oprah Winfrey show, from ancient ideas about reincarnation or from the greater Western milieu over the last several hundred years? Do these ideas come from wishful thinking or simple human optimism? I don't know. But I do know or observe that when people find themselves facing death, most of the people around us express some sort of vague or general belief, or maybe it's a long shot hope that there must be something beyond these lives. There must be. But I have always wanted or needed more assurance than that, more certainty than wishful thinking and groundless hoping. And as it just so happens, we find exactly that in the scriptures and in the faith of the earliest church. And their faith was not blind, it was not a groundless or illogical faith, but rather one that was and is grounded in experience and in facts and in history and in sound judgment, which we will see as we read. But first, let me pray again. God, as we open your word, help us to be attentive. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are good and fertile soil. To receive what you would have us know, learn, and become. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words in any way stray or deviate from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. From the Gospel of Luke, chapter 28, beginning at verse 1, this is what is written. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, 
The women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, these words, the son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day raised again. Then they remembered his words. When the women came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the disciples. But they, the disciples, did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. On the first day of the week, on the day after the Sabbath, when their day of rest was done, this handful of women did what was normal in their culture. Jesus' body had been quickly buried on a Friday afternoon before their Sabbath began at sunset. Now these women had arrived on the morning after the Sabbath to properly care for Jesus' body according to Jewish tradition and custom with spices and such, a way to honor the dead. Quote, but when they entered the tomb, they did not find the body of Jesus. And they wondered about this. And of course they wondered because bodies placed in tombs normally stayed in tombs. They didn't normally get up and walk away. And this particular body, Jesus' body, had been sealed in a tomb with guards posted at its entrance. And so the women wondered. And when two out-of-this-world-looking men, the likes of which they had never seen before, showed up and spoke to them, these two wondering women officially became afraid. If they had not seen, had not been in some way alarmed or frightened at the missing body itself, they were now just as you and I would be. Now some of you have done this. Imagine going to the grave of someone you love, of a family member, of a beloved one, and showing up at the cemetery and the gravesite of that one you loved one afternoon and finding that it had been turned up, undug, and it was empty. And before you had a chance to go to the cemetery office to ask what in the world had happened, two men gleaming like lightning show up and say to you in no uncertain terms, your beloved one is not there. He is risen. He is alive. How are you going to feel? How am I going to feel at this? I would certainly wonder and I would be afraid. And Luke tells us rather matter-of-factly that this group of women went and found the 11 remaining members of Jesus' inner circle of disciples, those who had the most faith, you might say. And the women told these disciples what they had seen, and Luke tells us that the men did not believe them, not because the women were unbelievable, but because what they said sounded like nonsense, nonsense, which admittedly is what it would sound like to us today as well. If someone said the same, if we had the same experience, for example, at the grave of a beloved one. And many people in our community would consider such an assertion, and some in this room would consider such an assertion then and today, complete nonsense. 
And so Peter ran off to the tomb to have a look for himself, and what he saw baffled him also, quote, and he too went away wondering to himself what had happened. And so we can agree on this. None of Jesus' first disciples, upon seeing or hearing that Jesus' tomb was empty, immediately rose to their feet, raised their hands, and started singing, Christ the Lord is risen today. That's not what they did. Rather, they were confused and baffled and alarmed. They had questions and fears and very real doubts, and they were understandably skeptical. An empty tomb, of course, does not prove that a body has been resurrected from death, but an empty tomb does raise some serious questions. It does pick one's curiosity. Now imagine you go home tomorrow and in the mail you get a letter from a law firm, very official looking letter, and in it, very official looking letterhead, and it says that someone who was very wealthy has died and you happen to be one of their heirs, and you are the recipient of a windfall that you would have never expected. Now what do you do? Fold it up, throw it in the trash, recycle it and go on? What do you do? No, you keep that letter, you put it on the table because the next morning you're gonna call that law office, aren't you? Yes, you are. You know you are. Because the stakes are too high, aren't they? The benefits, the possible benefits are too great. And doing so through the scriptures and with the full breath of one's mind, taking seriously a charge, an opportunity, a statement, an affirmation, a situation, is what bright and intelligent, thinking, thoughtful people do. They follow up. And Jesus' disciples remained open. They were by no means convinced about Jesus being raised from the dead, even with the announcement by the two gleaming men. Jesus' disciples were by no means convinced. But then Jesus began making appearances. And Jesus began showing up in the disciples' homes, along a road, at various meals, along the shore, He began showing up. And eventually Jesus would appear to hundreds of people, not in a vision, but in flesh and blood. Eating and drinking, speaking, touching, teaching, laughing, loving. And how do we know this to be true? How do we know that part to be true also? Not only because each of the four very different gospel writers finishes their books with such accounts of various sorts, but because the resurrection of Jesus is the only logical explanation for the birth of the church. The movement of people following Jesus came to a screeching halt at Jesus' brutal public execution on a cross at the hands of the ruthless Roman government. So violent and excruciating was such an execution that most of us can hardly watch a Hollywood reenactment of it on the big screen. We don't want to. I thought about putting it up on the screen, just pictures and vivid images this morning, but I know how distasteful, how unbearable That image, that vision, that day was and remains to us. We would turn our eyes away. And so imagine what the threat of such a similar punishment at the hands of the Romans would mean to Jesus' disciples if they continued to pledge their allegiance to their king 
Jesus. After all, part of the Romans and the Jewish council's intention in crucifying Jesus was not just to kill Jesus, but to frighten his followers too and to put an end to any thought that they might have of carrying on calling Jesus Lord. The Roman Empire already had a Lord. His name was Caesar and they wanted no other. And yet not only did Jesus rise, but so did his people. Because the tomb was empty and because Jesus was alive and because there became no doubt in their minds about such. And that changed everything. The resurrection, not just the empty tomb, is the only logical explanation for the existence and the flourishing of the early church. There is simply no other explanation for such. For the first generations of Christians, the person and healing and miracles and teachings and the unique winsomeness and the radical grace of Jesus and the cross of Jesus were all profoundly important, but all of these things meant little. In other words, Jesus Death was just another brutal crucifixion. If Jesus was not raised victorious as he said he would be from the grave and through such providing confirmation that all that he said about himself and all that he did was true. True. If one does not believe in the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus, then one has has to come up with a more plausible explanation for the thriving of the early church and even simply for the testimonies of those 11 inner circle disciples. They were not fools. They knew that in affirming Jesus' resurrection and of continuing to follow Jesus and call him Lord, that they were likely signing their own death warrants. And most of them, would be killed for their faith. In 1969 and 1970, Charles Colson, Chuck Colson, as we knew him, served as special counsel. He's a bright young attorney. Special counsel to President Richard Nixon. In 1974, he served seven months in federal prison as the first member of Nixon's administration to be incarcerated for the Watergate scandal. But the year before, in 1973, the year before he served his prison time, Colson experienced a radical transformation in his life, becoming a Christian and a totally new person, and eventually becoming one of the most influential people in all of Christianity, not just in the United States, but around the world in the late 20th century, for primarily his work, but not exclusively, on reforming prisons around the world with grace and mercy. And in the book in which he told his story of his being born again, of his radical conversion, Colson wrote these words, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me, how? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would have not endured that if the resurrection of Jesus wasn't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world at that time, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. 
You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. But a person should consider the case for Christ for themselves. Absolutely. Just like the women, just like Peter, just like Thomas, and like the rest of Jesus' inner circle and broader circle. The scriptures tell us that all of those people were bewildered and afraid and confused at different times. It was not only the disciple Thomas who had great doubts, who was skeptical. True belief in the resurrection of Jesus is rarely a snap, and it is not supposed to be, and we should not pretend that it is. God has given every one of us a mind, and he expects us to use it. At the same time, God calls us to himself. He reveals himself to us. He draws us to himself, and he invites us into his divine and eternal life. And for those who have discovered and concluded that the resurrection of Jesus and or the resurrected Jesus is something and is someone in which and in whom one can put one's total confidence and on whom one can ground one's life, a number of other realities become evident. First, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we are certain that Jesus was the most unique person who has ever lived. He simply had and has no peers from any time or place around the world, including today. Going further, we believe that Jesus was not only the most unique person to ever live, but also that he was fully divine, that he was God incarnate, that as Jesus said, he and the Father were one, and so he and he alone was able to pay the debt for our sin on his cross through his death. Third, because Jesus was raised from the dead, because he experienced death fully, but then somehow conquered death, we thus know that there is life beyond this earthly life and these mortal bodies, that there is something and someone beyond this life. Building on this, because Jesus who conquered death said that, there was, that he was going, where he was going, he would take us as well, we can live with hope. I may worry about severe turbulence when flying that I'm going to die in a plane crash. I may be hit by a bus on the way home this afternoon. I may be diagnosed with terminal cancer a month from now. I'd love to stick around long enough to see the San Antonio Spurs win another championship. <laughs> that may be a long time. I'd love to stick around long enough to see all of my kids graduate from high school and maybe also college and maybe even get married. But even if this body of mine expires before I witness any of those things, I am not the least bit worried, at least not for myself, because I am not afraid of death itself. Because I have a firm and certain hope of what lies ahead for me because of the resurrection of Jesus and because of my trust in him. And so can you. And many of you do. And there are still more. As the apostle wrote to the church in Ephesus, the same power, chapter one, the same power that God exerted in raising Jesus from the grave is also and still available to us, not necessarily to walk on water or multiply, multiply loaves and fishes or heal people from blindness or leprosy, but the same power is available to us, Paul wrote, 
to rise above difficult circumstances, trials, tribulations, suffering and hardship, to resist overwhelming temptation, to forgive those who have betrayed us, to forgive the unforgivable, and power to speak the truth in love, power to love even our enemies. And because Jesus was raised from the grave, we can have every confidence, not only that he was who he said he was, but also that what Jesus said was true and everything that he said was true about God and about life and about the world and about how to live. And so we have been given a roadmap for life from the author of life itself. And while not every turn may be clear to us, Most of them are, most of them can be when we listen to the rabbi, when we pay attention to the teaching of our master, when we go the way of Jesus. Last fall, we spent the entire fall talking about the way of Jesus. In other words, loving God, loving our neighbors, giving, serving, blessing, forgiving, resting. And we know that that way is the way of abundant living. And because... And we know that because Jesus is the way and his resurrection simply proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Got a few images to share with us this morning. These images have lots to do with Easter. There's Sharon Tasser over on the right. They have lots to do with Easter but nothing to do with resurrection. Now look at these images. These are the graves and the burial places of the greatest religious and faith and spiritual leaders the world has ever known. Of Confucius, of Abraham, of Moses, of Mohammed, for some of Joseph Smith. But in every case, There is a grave, there is a tomb, and it has been always revered by that person's followers because that person died and is buried there. The early Christians did not revere Jesus' tomb. They did not revere or make sacred his tomb because he is alive, because he rose from the dead, because the tomb is empty. And that changed everything for Jesus' disciples, and that changes everything for us. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Amen. Let's let's pray. Pray with me. God, we are like the disciples. We are like Mary and Joanna and the other Mary. We are like Peter and the rest of the 11. We are like Thomas. We worry, we wonder, we have doubts. We are skeptical. Assure us. Point us to the power that is alive today. Draw us to yourself. Help us to weigh the evidence. Fill us with your spirit. Grant to us and the people of the earth today in northern India and in northern San Mateo 
and everywhere in between. The life that is truly life in these bodies and in and beyond these bodies another day. And in doing so, may you be glorified, may you take great delight, and may your kingdom come. Amen.